Hello and welcome to the latest Health on the Line. Today features a, a great interview that I had with the international trade lawyer but campaigner also around women's leadership, Miriam Gonzalez Durantes. So please uh, stay with us to listen to that really interesting conversation. Part of the reason why we've chosen this interview with Miriam for today is because of course today or the day that I'm recording this is International Women's Day. The Confederation is proud to be hosting an event of our Health and Care Women's Leaders Network with Amanda Pritchard and hosted by Network Chair uh, Sam Allen. Uh, we've got some fantastic presenters Sajida Ahmed, Sabina Haveschi, who are the co-chairs, introducing the NHS Muslim Women's uh, Network, and Claire Barnett, Executive Director of UN Women, on the role of International Women's Day as a day for action, not just uh, celebration. So lots of stuff we're doing around International uh, Women's Day. In terms of more generally what's going on, the good news uh, is, as I speak, that negotiations are continuing between uh, the government, employers and uh, trade unions. And we've seen industrial action put on abeyance while those negotiations take place. So we're still hoping that there'll be a positive outcome to those negotiations, both in terms of this year's pay, but also hopefully next year's pay as well. But whilst that's the good news, the bad news is that Again, at, at time of speaking, the junior doctors' strike is still likely to be uh, going ahead. Um, and that is extremely worrying to us. Uh, our leaders tell us that there are real issues around patient safety and a major impact on the capacity of our providers to meet their key targets, particularly in relation to the recovery of services and the elective uh, backlog. So we're very worried about the junior doctors' action. We're worried that at the moment there's no agreement in terms of those services that might be covered and, and potentially no services being covered that, that will then rely on consultants stepping up. But consultants themselves uh, have uh, voted uh, in positively in an affirmative vote in terms of considering action over pay themselves. And even if consultants do step up, um, there's concerns that they will uh, ask for the BAMA rate card, which means more financial pressure on uh, providers who are already uh, very overstretched. So we are calling in the context of this really worrying threat of junior doctors strike action, three days, uh, we're calling on both sides, the government and the junior doctors, to try to find a way of bridging what is currently a really big gap between uh, between them. And then a couple of other issues. We have joined a 30-strong coalition of organisations um, expressing profound concern to the government about the further delay in the publication of the public health grant. We've seen that public health grant cut in real terms year uh, after um, year. So we really need to see um, that grant and we need to see a reversal of the process of reducing it if we have any commitment to actually shifting towards an agenda focus more on prevention, improvements in population health, then we've got to start recognising the importance of the way in which we fund public health. And then that takes me to two final issues. We are seeing worrying signs that the government may step away from fully funding the workforce plan that we know has been produced and that is ready for publication. Uh, we would be extremely concerned if this happens. Um, as everybody knows, as every leader I speak to tells me, the rate limiting factor in the health service is workforce. 
We've been calling for this workforce plan for years. We were delighted when it was finally announced. But if we have a plan but not the funding to go with it, it's going to be profoundly disappointing. And it's difficult if we don't really grasp these workforce issues to see how the NHS moves away from being in a kind of perpetual state of crisis management. And then more broadly, money is certainly moving up the agenda. Uh, Whether I talk to systems who are now, of course, facing a 30% cut in their establishment over the next two years, I talk to providers about their financial situation. Money is now becoming a very big and pressing issue. We hear there's no extra money likely to be announced uh, in the budget. So, of course, that opens up the question if if we are going to have slightly more generous pay settlements for our staff, where is that money uh, going to come from? So we will be pressing very hard in the next few days, both in terms of revenue and capital, for a recognition of the funding that the NHS needs. If it's going to carry on doing what we have to do, which is to meet very high levels of demand, presenting themselves in every part of the system, and at the same time to recover services, to tackle the elective waiting list, but the waiting list that exists in all parts of of our service. And we're going to need to put the pressure on to have a proper, sustainable, long-term plan for both workforce funding and particularly capital funding in the NHS. So that's our day-to-day work, and we'll press on with it. But now, uh, do please uh, sit back or whatever it is you're doing when you listen to this podcast and listen to my interview with Miriam Gonzalez-Durantes. New Ideas. Big debates, meeting the change makers, transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. Well, I'm delighted to be joined for this edition of Health on the Line by Miriam Gonzalez Torrantes. Uh, it's fantastic to be speaking to Miriam um, in a program which is particularly focused around uh, International Women's Day. So, Miriam, welcome. We're, we're delighted to have this conversation with you. For anybody who, who doesn't know, you're an esteemed international trade lawyer, you're a passionate advocate of women's rights in the education of girls, a published author, and you've sat on the board of a number of large banks, multinational companies. You've got, a, as I say, a long record of kind of advocacy around women's and girls' rights. Um before we kind of get into some of the issues that I want to explore with you, it would be great, Miriam, if you could just share with us a bit about your own leadership journey. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm um, a passionate supporter of the NHS and I owe so much to the to the NHS having had a song with cancer. So I would be um, grateful forever until I, I dive um, to the NHS and everybody who makes it uh, work. My leadership journey, I, you know, <laughs> I think that when you ask a question like that directly, the first thing that comes to my mind is, have I really had a leadership journey? Uh, and I have never focused myself on on whether what I was doing was leadership or, or not, but I have done in my life really is just to to work hard in my professional life. And then there has been one area that I have always felt passionate about, which is to make sure that girls have enough female role models so that they can see all the different things that they can do in life. And, and all that I have done is to provide a framework for women to be able to um, to be there and to be seen uh, by girls. And I, I suppose that some may see that as leadership. I just see that as a, as a natural development in my life. 
And Miriam, for yourself, have there been times in your journey where being a woman has presented additional kind of challenges? Oh, many, many um, times, and there continue being many uh, obstacles that come simply from the fact that I am a woman. But I guess that um, the the first main obstacle that I had is that I, I I'm a girl who was brought up in Spain in the time in the transition from. Um, dictatorship to um, democracy, and I was really lucky to be brought up in in an atmosphere, in a culture that valued effort. But I wasn't really educated in risk. Girls <laughs> in my time, you know, they didn't encourage us to take risks and to be able to assess risk and to deal with it. And that is something that I have had to learn later on. There have been many obstacles, of course, at the time that I was having um, children and I have three sons and and by and large, it is still women who uh, deal with um, bringing up children and certainly dealing with the houses. So during that time, um, I had additional pressures that I don't think I would have had, uh, generally speaking, eh? I'm generalizing, I would not have had if I had been... A man, and and you know, throughout my whole journey, I have found plenty of times that that some men, mostly, but some women as well, wanted kind of to put me in my place and tell me that I was only doing what I am doing because um, of being married to a man who was in politics at the time, and I have had to to fight against that uh, perception and to make sure that I was putting out there the point that the value of women doesn't depend on who we are married to, who we are daughters of, who whatever, that it depends on ourselves. So yes, all that I have had to, to deal with, as I indeed think that many women have to deal with that and, and much worse. Yes, I mean, I, I remember when you, you came to kind of public prominence as a consequence of of being married to Nick Clegg. And it must have been, I mean, I remember at the time there was this kind of process. It was quite quick, but there was this kind of process where the the mainstream media went, oh, oh, it turns out that this woman isn't just the wife of a politician. She's quite a kind of interesting and substantial. It must have been it must have been quite annoying for you to have to go through that process of being discovered to be a person in your own right. Well, I, I have never taken that um too personally, but I, you know, I have had moments that I, I have been very surprised at not not really the public reaction, the reaction of the media, which I think that mm. is is um, much more old fashioned and, and it takes much longer to to adapt to to reality. But I remember vividly, for example, making the headlines and and being not just in the tabloids, but being in the uh, today program, for example, simply because I said that I share with my husband they taking to uh, they taking the children to a school every day, and that was almost revolutionary. And it's like really <laughs> that is uh, that is an issue. Or or when I said that I, you know, of course I would try to help my husband, but I could not afford to give up uh, two months of of my time, of my work, just dedicated to, to him. And um, and all those issues um, were a surprise. If I had been a man, <laughs> that would not have been um, a surprise. So, so the impact that that has on girls, that is what 
uh, worries me. It's not so much the personal side because I know how to deal with it, but the impact that that has on the next generation, that drip, drip sexism, that is a worry. So you launched um, Inspiring Girls in, in 2016. And I'm interested in, 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 in what, what prompted you to do that. And also particularly, what was the kind of theory of change that lay behind that? Why did you think that was the particular type of intervention that you, you wanted to focus on? Well, I had started something similar beforehand in 2013 uh, here in the UK. And at the time, it was called Inspiring Women. And, and I... I got into that for two reasons. On the one hand, I had always, as I said earlier, been preoccupied about the fact that many girls say that they don't have access, they feel they don't have access to female role models, which I have always thought that is is just bizarre because myself, on my own, I know so many, I mean hundreds of wonderful female role models, women that... They are not necessarily on the magazine or, or on television every day, but they are amazing and all the girls should be looking up to them. And How come we are not exposing those women uh, to girls? And on the other hand, I found myself, precisely because of the fact that uh, Nick was in politics and there was media attention on to me, I found myself with that public exposure and for a long time, I fought against it. And then one day I thought, well, why aren't we using it? And why aren't we using it for something positive? And, and that is how Inspiring Women first uh, came up. And we managed to get 25,000 women all throughout the country going back to school. And then in 2016, I wanted to internationalize it. And, and to be honest, Matthew, I think that at, at that point, some people thought, oh, well, you know, her husband is not in politics anymore. <laughs> She's not going to be able to make it. And it is my pride, really, to say that that it was almost an immediate success. We are now in 30 countries, and it's not because of me. It is because women, women really, and, and, and people generally, everybody wants to, to help. If there is something easy they can do to help, of course they will. They just need to know how to do it. And to me, that is the, the journey of change. In order to change things, you need to do two things. One is to be very focused. You know, I believe in the theory of the square centimeter. You just choose one square centimeter and you do not move away from that until you uh, see change. And on the other hand, the second element is that it has to be simple. So whenever you want to, to affect some change, you need to, to make a massive effort at the beginning to simplify the action. And that, I think, is what we have successfully done in, in Inspiring Girls. It's very, very simple. What we are asking from every woman, go back to school one hour. You know, we have means for you to do it remotely. If you cannot do it physically, it's a tiny, tiny um, thing that we are asking from you. But it has a multiplier effect on girls. Uh, and, and remarkably... You know, that, that work led up to the point in, in, in 2021 where you launched this kind of global campaign to connect women role models from all walks of life. The, the, this little girls me hashtag went viral. Thousands of women shared their stories. I'm just looking at some of the people, Madeleine Albright, Julia Gillard, Martina Navratilova. Um, 
what what do you hope is the kind of lasting effect of of of, of a kind of amazing moment like that where you you really did create a kind of global conversation? Well, the, the reason we launched uh, this little girl is me um, is that we are forever thinking where are the girls. So the, the issue is not finding the female role models. There are so many. The issue is how do we connect them to the girls? And in order to do that, we need to see where the girls are so that we go there. So initially we started saying, let's go back to school because they are there. And then it was like, well, let's make it even easier so that in parallel, let's try to have a video hub so that from their homes, they can have access to their role models. And then it was well, why do they have to click on the video hub? Cannot we just put that the role models there in the their their feeds of social media, no? So that even if they don't click, they have to see these female role models. And that is why we thought of this campaign for bringing the female role models uh, to the mobile telephones of the of the girls. And we did that with something really simple that every woman can do, which is to post a picture of themselves around International Day of the Girl and to say what they wanted to be at that time, you know, their journey, how they went up and down. I mean, those um, lessons in life about falling down and going back up again are really invaluable uh, for the girls. And that is why we put together the the campaign and what we want to do is to continue doing it year after year so that every international day of the girl in october we do something more than just saying happy international day of the girl we do something meaningful which is very very little effort but girls can see all those enormous amounts of female role models women who are you know you mentioned some matthew who are well known the really impressive thing is the amount of women who are not well-known who participated in the campaign, and those are the ones that girls normally cannot see, and they were able to see them at the time. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, turning to, to this year's International Women's Day, the theme is uh, embrace equity, and and the kind of talking point that I think that 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 the architects of the day want to to, to get people to focus on is this notion that equal opportunities are no longer enough. What does that what does that idea that equal opportunities are no longer enough? What does that mean to you, Miriam? Well, I hope that I don't um, surprise you, Matthew, by saying that sometimes I'm a little bit skeptical about these um, slogans that come out. It's mostly from the from the UN around International <laughs> Day of the Girl and International Women's um, Day. And I think that when we talk about equality and equity, there is a really good thought behind it, right? So I think that the, the difference basically is we talk a lot about equal opportunities, but we need to make sure that we go one step farther which is to adapt those opportunities to whatever is the starting point of everybody. So if you wish, it's the the customization or personalization of the equal opportunities that no doubt in theory is a really, really good idea. Um, you know, last year it was uh, breaking the boundaries. So, so again, it's 
concepts that make us think, and that I am in favor of that today. You know, let's think about how we can go to the next step. The only issue that I have sometimes with some of these slogans is that they tend to be a little bit far away from reality. So right now, we do not have equal opportunities. Right now, we have equal opportunities in some countries before the law between men and women. In some countries, we don't even have equality before the law. Uh, we have in countries like, like ours, mine, Spain, yours, the UK, we have equality more or less in the workplace, though you know, there are some final touches that are missing there. But by and large, all throughout the world, there is not equality at home. Women continue being the ones that take the burden, not just of bringing up the children, but that, you know, there have been some developments in the last few years, but by and large, they take care of the houses and organizing everything that is necessary for families to survive. While that is still happening, I think that it is great to have that reflection about equality versus equity, but I would like to see more action and more pressure from the UN and more focus on the public policies that are needed to get that basic equality that we still don't have. Now, that's really interesting. And there's, there's an element that I want to come back to in a second. But just before we, we kind of move away from, as, as it were, kind of some of the core issues around, around equality in the workplace. Now, in the NHS, we have four out of five of the workforce is female, but less than 50% of board places are taken by women. So there is still an issue about women, as it were, getting getting to the top. So what more do you think needs to be done there? And also, you, you know, you've, you've advised and sat on the board large companies in terms of area, the area of equality and diversity. And, and I wonder what that's taught you about what organizations, of course, the NHS is one of the biggest organizations in the world, but what organizations need to do, how, what, what are the extra things they need to do to make sure that the commitment to equality is real right up to that board level? Well, to me, the only, the only thing that is missing for women to have more access to the top posts and, and the board, and sometimes it's not really um, the board in terms of non-executive uh, posts, it's mostly the executive posts. All that is needed is to look for the women. The women are there. <laughs> the only issue is that not enough effort is being made to find those women and to allow them to apply for those jobs. So, you know, I, precisely because I have been in boards, I know the quality of people in boards. It is just not true that everybody who is in boards right now is absolutely outstanding and, you know, there is no mediocrity. And if suddenly you open this up to more women, the level would go down. You know, I can give names some family names of people who I have seen in boards and should not be there. As I'm sure that you can as well. Anybody who has been in boards have had that experience. So the issue is just is just to find them and to make sure that they do have those opportunities. I happen to come from a continental culture. We are a little bit more open to systems like quotas that you are in the Anglo-Saxon culture. I think that everybody has to find their way, but they are there. And I think that the main thing that one has to do is to make sure that financial rewards are um go together with the task that is given to anybody to find those women. 
if you are asking your human resources department, if you are asking your, your search firm to find diversity and to find women for, for certain jobs and to find enough diversity for those jobs, they should not receive the same remuneration if they do not find them because they are there. Yes, and I think another element of this, Miriam, and it, it, not just in relation to gender but other areas, is is the importance of of, of, of mutual support. We have a, a, a health and care women leaders network that we run at the Confederation, and it's been a really powerful tool for change in terms, on the one hand, kind of lobbying the NHS to be an exemplar for flexible working, eliminating the gender pay gap, but also just providing that mutual support uh, for women on the journey up, but also women at the top who then still face some of the challenges that you've you've described. Um, sure, uh, but if they make flexible working, it's not just for women. Huh? No, of course. No, <laughs> of course. So, no, of course. That's a, a, a very well-made point. Um, but I, I just wanted to, to return to something you said earlier about, about how we might be achieving equality in elements of the workplace, but we don't have equality in necessarily in the home. There's another dimension to this, which is around class. Um, I mean, Alison Wolf wrote a, a, a book about this a few years ago, in in which she she talked about the fact that in many countries, including in developing countries, there'd been really quite remarkable progress amongst middle class women in professions in relation to gender equality, but yet. When you looked at the other end of the labour market, you looked at the lowest paid jobs, still women were overwhelmingly concentrated in some of the lowest paid, lower status jobs. Are you concerned that sometimes when we talk about these issues, we we, we focus on the professional progress of women and we don't talk enough about the relationship between gender equality and economic inequality? Well, you throw a lot of um, angles <laughs> into into that question. Do I think that there is a, a class issue? Uh, yes, I do think that there is a class issue, of course, and there is a, an economic issue. Um, very often, where you see most progress in countries in terms of equality is the middle class. Why? Because in the lower class... You have a lot of women who simply cannot afford to work in some cases because they cannot afford childcare. And in some other cases, they cannot afford not to work. So they they just don't have freedom to do (laughs) any of those two things. They just have to go with the circumstances, frankly, and, and, and they are in survival, in survival mode. So a lot of the, the progress and the changes that you see there tends to be in the middle class. I think that at some point, we all need to start talking about something that has become a bit of a taboo, which is what happens with the women of the upper classes. And I think that we would be surprised if we see the numbers at the amount of women in the upper class who decide not to work and simply to support their husbands. And those are women who can afford childcare. <laughs> nevertheless, they are not, they have decided not to work and they choose for that family model of only one of the two can have can have a career. That is certainly something that I have seen around the city of London when I first came to the UK here um, 15 years ago, I think it was now. I have seen that in Silicon Valley. It is it is something that we haven't examined yet 
why that is why that is happening. But yes, certainly the bit that that worries me most is obviously what happens in the in the lower class jobs and and the interaction with the middle class. And that there is no doubt that you, you if you are a woman working in uh, in a low pay uh, job, you have. You have very few options, and, and you depend very much on, on everybody else for for everything. You know the, the fact that we don't focus enough on childcare and options, and there has been such little progress in public policies on making sure that we, as a society, we provide options in terms of not just childcare, but we should be doing it also in terms of what is needed for families to be able. <laughs> To work if they so wish, and, and frankly, from the point of view of public policy, you know, you can look look at it from the point of view of the individual, and there it is about choice. Anybody who wants to work, for example, they should be able to do that if they so wish. But you can also look at it from the point of view of um, the society, of the countries, and the interest of the countries is to have as many people in productivity jobs as we can. You know, we can afford the welfare state for two reasons. Since the Second World War, because of debt and because women have started working. So that is not going to stop, right? So if we have an interest on that happening economically, we should be having the public policy discussions that that open up to possible solutions and, and new options, and that really is not happening almost anywhere in the world. No, it's very interesting, and I, I suspect that childcare is going to be, you know, an issue uh, of some prominence at our next general election. I think I think both the Conservative government and Labour opposition, and I'm sure the Liberal Democrats as well, are, are recognising that that what they say about their commitments around childcare will be will be listened to closely by the electorate. But, but the other reason, Miriam, I, I wanted to talk about about the relationship here between kind of economic power uh, and 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 gender is around care. So you know we have you know big challenges in the national health service, but in many ways, a lot of health leaders would say to you that that, that our challenges are less than the challenges facing our social care system, where we have I don't know one hundred hundred and seventy thousand vacancies, and Many, many people in social care are paid at the minimum wage. They have per- pretty terrible working conditions. And I I wonder whether, you know, for you, one of the things we have to do is we have to change the way in which we understand care, the status that we give care in society, both care that is paid for, but also care, unpaid care, that as long as we... That, that, that crucial to a kind of building a more progressive, inclusive society is one which gives greater status and value to care. Do you, do you agree with that? I do agree with that, but not only um, because that is necessary to have a more progressive and inclusive society. It's because economically, <laughs> that is a discussion that we need to have. We are clearly having an issue that we are not accounting properly for care and care costs and care value in our society. Whenever somebody does it for free within the families, we kind of take it for granted. But then we do pay for care in some other cases. So we should be able to put a value into that care. And we should be able to see that, for example, for for tax purposes. And we are not really examining any of that. You know, those are the kind of... 
it is like if in in the last ten years, so to speak, the, the public policies generally have been on a standstill, and we are not seeing kind of new innovative ideas to kind of move us where we should be going. You know, we have all this economic revolution of a, a new society very much based in data and tech and all that, and we are not taking all that data and, and trying to see what new models of public policy uh, we could have. So, yes, I agree. I, I agree very much with that. You know, that is one of the points that I often make, make. You know, the care that the women give in the houses, for example, why cannot we just put a value on it? Why has that become a taboo? And why cannot we just look at that on the on the tax and, and economic perspective? You no, know, in in societies, we just need somebody to start <laughs> doing it. Um, and that is where I think that the big organization. Listen, a, a lot of the other things, you know, the um, the kind of societal changes, we can do it in in charities and non government governmental organization they're raising awareness we can do it a, a lot of the change can come from companies and um, public organizations like the NHS as well and you, you know we are all doing a lot of work in that respect and we have made a lot of progress but the public policy work that can only come from the public institutions or the international organizations like the UN. So you, you need a lot of economic muscle and power to be able to do that work. And that's where they should be focusing, really. And that is where I would like to see you and women in particular uh, focus. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, just before we finish on this issue of care, and I have one more question for you, Miriam, but on this issue of, of, of care, you know, you quite rightly said to me earlier, flexible work is not just about women. Absolutely right. And, and you know, one of the challenges is to get men to take up their entitlements to, you know, uh, paternity leave or, or, or whatever entitlement that there, there is that exists. And it, it, it seems to me that, that you know, we, we talk a lot about, about automation, about AI, but, you know, one thing that is not going to be automated anytime soon is, is, is care. And as long as I think society is understand care as a low status thing, then it has all sorts of other kind of consequences, not just about how do you recruit people to those jobs and how you value them, but also it, it means that something incredibly important like bringing up children or something incredibly important like giving people comfort at the end of their lives, that we, we don't take those things as serious as we should as, as part of a, a good society. So, so Miriam, I've got one last question. I'm sorry if this seems a bit kind of, pathetic but nevertheless i'm talking to you and i'm going to ask you but i i i am a, a chief executive of an organization and i'm committed to equity is there one thing you would advise me to think about when i think about what more i could be doing myself as a chief executive of an organization the, the main advice that i will give to you is that whenever you set your equity objectives you Treat that as you treat anything else that you do as a CEO, as a chief executive. On anything else, any other objective that you put in your organization, you tie the money to it. You put financial rewards and penalties to it. Those who meet the objectives, they get more money. Those who don't, they get less money. Treat your objectives on equity exactly in the same way. Well... Thank you very much for that advice. I will reflect on it. Um, you're quite right. 
if you have objectives you have targets and some of them you put incentives behind and rewards behind others you don't then people quite soon uh, understand what that message is uh, Miriam Gonzalez Durantes it's been a real honor to speak to you thank you so much for giving us your time thank you for having me it has been a pleasure you've been listening to health on the line from the NHS confederation visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast.